I'm, I'm over my anger. I'll probably come back to my anger. But anyway, let's talk about Snowpiercer. Hello and welcome to the Oncast. My name is Dom. That's one half of the Oncast. I'm joined by Tom. Say hello, Tom. Hello. Oh, well, bonjour. Bonjour. Oui. Uh, yeah. Um, in the, bleh, in yes. this episode... Fuck's sake. <laughs> You've completely thrown You're fucking me, mouthful man. again, haven't you? God damn it. Right. In this <laughs> episode, in anticipation of the new Netflix series, we're reviewing Bon Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, starring Chris Evans, Tilda Swinton and Kang Ho-sung. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie Bell's in it as well. Jamie Bell, Tilda Swinton, um, who else? Uh, John uh, Hurt. John Hurt. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really good cast, actually, but I wanted to make sure we mentioned um, Kang Hoosong, who's the guy who has literally yeah. was just in Parasite, and he was amazing, and he's great in this as well. Um, yeah, I think he's in every single one of Bong Joon-ho's films. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I he's, think they're like best friends and... They've got, yeah, it's the, one of those director-actor relationships where, you know, they work together over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, but it's great that they managed to keep him in this and they let him speak Korean throughout the whole thing as well. He isn't, you know, yeah. and just, he gives an amazing performance. Um, yeah. So what this is, is, and like I said, the reason we're doing it is because they're about to do a, or they've already started, I think it's already um, premiered in the States, um, mm-hmm. a new TV adaptation of this same story, which is Snowpiercer, which is based on a graphic novel, a French graphic novel, um, called La Transporteuse, La, La something, Transcierge, I think. La, La Transcierge, some I don't know, French shit. Anyway, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying how great it was that they get the Korean guy and let him speak Korean and all the rest of it, and immediately there's something French. I can't be asked to say it. <laughs> and yeah. Brilliant. Perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about this and it's like a dystopian, dark future um, sci-fi film, basically. And it's basically the yeah. essential concept of it is that humanity are stranded on a perpetually moving train that has to continually move around the world and they can't leave the train because the world is completely frozen over and it's like it's death to go outside what you end up yeah. with is a society within this train where there are the the upper class and the lower class who sort of compete for resources and one's in control and at the front of the train and looks after the engine and then the lower class are at the back and sort of live in poverty and squalor. Mm. That's the basic premise of it. And then you get into a an attempt at a revolution from the lower class led by main character in this called Curtis, who's played by Chris Evans. Yeah, um, and that's one thing it's it. important to note is because um, you know we're MCU nerds. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the reason. This film is the reason that at the end of the Avengers, the post-credit scene in the Avengers when they're eating shawarma. Oh uh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the reason that Cap has his hand over his lower face because he's got a beard. Yeah, is because right. he has a beard. Because he has a beard, because he's doing this, like, and there was lots of like. So I was reading about like the casting process. Like Chris Evans actively campaigned for this and really wanted to do it. Mm. Um, I think this was around the top because this came out in about 2013, I think. Yeah. Um, and so this was after his first initial Captain America movie, um, and actually, uh, yeah, after it would have been after the Avengers as well. Um, but he like really campaigned for it, and the director, um, Bong Joon Ho. Bon Ho, yeah, was like really against it because he was like, oh no, he's too like, 
he's too muscular, he's too all American. Like I don't believe that he's like been living this life of poverty on this train and all the rest of it. Yeah. But then having seen him in audition and see like his other performances in things like um Sunshine, he sort of yeah. believed in it more and decided to go with it. And instead they used like things like camera angles and what and his costume and stuff to sort of hide the fact that he's that well, you know, that he's that jacked basically <laughs> because you yeah. have to because you, you can't be captain america physique throwing people around because uh, yeah he's right that wouldn't have really made a lot of sense no <laughs> especially in a thing where he's grown up purely eating these protein bars he's li- eating protein bars in a confined space on a train so yeah he's not going to have that captain america physique it's not realistic yeah. for that to be the case so that, I, i'm glad they, they found a way around that um but yeah this film was great man this is the first time i've seen it um, yeah, I fucking love this film. This is probably, oh gosh, I don't know. This is prob- maybe the tenth time I've seen this film. Yeah. I watched it twice yesterday. Yeah. Um, in sort of preparation for this, I put it on. And I was like, oh, I fucking love this. You know, what? I'm just putting, going to put it on again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And just go on with it because it's just so good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. Like, I remember. Hearing, hearing rumbles about it like the first time because it didn't make that much of a splash when it first came out like it was excellently reviewed and people mm. loved it but it just wasn't as widespread because it was at that point when marvel and all these big big huge franchises were coming through on their own yeah yeah absolutely yeah um and it probably yeah, it's kind of film though you see like the production like um the studios and stuff that were behind it, it probably didn't have that big of marketing budget. It's very niche, obviously. It's very much R-rated. It's a very dark, yeah. like, so I can understand why it may not have had that audience to start with. But now it's sort of gained this cult status. And again, now that it's, it's being adapted again into the Snowpiercer, the TV series, and there's a lot of fans who are really excited for that, um, for them to be able to get into the Netflix show and then explore things in greater detail with more sort of, you know, time spent on it. I'm not sure if they're planning on making it an ongoing series or it's going to be a one and done or they've got an end game in mind, how many series they're going to go for. But I'll be interested to see how they do it going forward. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure, to be honest, because, um, I mean, we'll get more into spoilers later about how this film ends. Yeah. And where it ends up and what, what it means. And also what, Bong Joon-ho himself has said about this film mm. because he's actually obviously it's become this really widely regarded film and like a lot of people have wanted to talk to him about it and he's been very clear about the points that he's sort of said yeah so and he's been like very like specific and very open about it he's not someone that's like being a bit cagey being like well it's just this is what this means and this yeah. is what this is and this is what happens here yeah um, and basically, yeah, so I mean, the, the, the plot or the story of the film is so you've got this train set up um, where, like I say, at the back of the tail end of the train, you've got the guys who are sort of the, the suffering, the, um, the lower class people who like scam their way onto the, or not scam their way, but they managed to get their way onto the train as the world was ending. Yeah. Um, and then they've got the, the, the guys who run the show, the guys who are, have got them under the boot heel sort of thing at the front. And there's the whole point, the whole story of the film is them trying to instigate a revolution and get to the front of the train so they can control the train and sort of free their people kind of thing. And this is all yeah. led by Chris Evans, his character. 
He then has like his mental character, like his Obi-Wan character, if you like, who's played by John Hurt. He has his sort of second in command, who's played by Jamie Bell. Um, and they then go through this journey together. They come up against obstacles. They have like the one of the main antagonists in it is played by Tilda Swinton, who's this kind of she's she's an odd character to me. She's she like at first I thought she sort of really stuck out and didn't seem to fit with the rest of the time right. film. But then once you get further into the train, you see like because as they go through the train, obviously you see like what the other class are like and what it's yeah. like for them. It, she made more sense to me as they got further on. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> because it is quite jarring at first. Like when she like there's so to give it us, it's not really a spoiler to speak of. Like there's yeah. a point early in the film when a child is taken. Yeah, but they established quite early on that the that at some point at various intervals the guys from the upper class part of the train will come down and literally take children from the lower class yeah and that it, it sort of establishes something that is a regular occurrence but we see that happen quite early on yeah and that's one of like curtis's like motivating factors is the fact that this specific child or this child was taken and another one was taken before and then there's there's a situation that occurs because of all of this which further presses his encouragement Mm. and but when the child is taken like the first the, the person that comes in is in bright yellow yeah whereas yeah. everything that we've seen so far is like excruciatingly dark is very greasy is very grimy is very dirty and um everything's like really worn out and you that gives you like initially gives you like the first indication of like where this all sits yeah and how this sort of structure the societal structure works. And as you say, as they get further through the train, mm. things really start to escalate and you start to see how things are like how the train in itself is like you were saying about the book, um, is its own ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. And how, how it, because you, you have so many questions to start with, like, cause they, they set up how this world works and why it is that there's trains on there, but you start to think, well, wait a minute, where's the food come from? How do they do this? How do they do that? And all those questions are kind of answered throughout the train. It's amazing. Like the production design on this is unbelievable. Like some of the train carriages and stuff and the way God, they're, yeah. they're put together. I mean, there's a, you know, again, not sporty much, but at one point there's an aquarium car. There's like a food production <laughs> bit. There's a like horticultural carriage, and it all. And it, as you go along, you go. Actually, no, it does make sense. It, it makes yeah. sense that this thing can exist and they can continue to live like this. Because the idea that they've been on this train for 17 years since the world. And again, this is another thing that he changed from the book, but it's a great setup and a great premise at the very beginning of the of the film, where they say, right, the reason this has happened is because humanity tried to cool the planet. We tried yeah. to disperse a gas into the air, which I think they call CW7, which then cools the planet down and stops global warming. But in doing that, it's too effective and we end up freezing <laughs> the entire planet and it everyone dies. Absolutely fucked it. Yeah, so it's that sort of humanity being their own destruction and in trying to save ourselves, we get like the horrible irony of destroying the planet in trying to save it through science yes. and like that's a whole new element that was never in the original uh comic book i don't believe i think that was more that it was like a chemical weapon that went wrong um whereas with this it was like us actively trying to save ourselves and in doing so killing ourselves <laughs> it's like right yeah well, that's just fucking you know prophetic already isn't it yeah um but yeah like i, I said 
Tilda Swinton's and again, character. And again, like, this is a theme that sort of yeah. carries throughout about yeah. how like nature has like reclaimed or what we've done has been, have had this like wider effect on nature and whether nature is sort of fighting back almost. Because the way that they talk about it is that like the white and when they talk about the outside they don't talk about it like it's it's bad weather or inclement weather or anything like that they talk about it like it's this um like malevolence like this malevolent force that's out there and that the only reason that is that they're all they're, they're getting away from it yeah absolutely yeah and they and they make this point so like even like in the in the first sort of half because again the film progress as the film progresses obviously the you, we follow this set of characters the whole way and we don't see the late the latter half of the train until they see it so what that means yeah. is we don't see the outside world until they get to the later tra- the carriages where they have windows because in yeah. the back half of the train there are no windows everything's completely no. dark they can't see the outside world so until they f- literally have to fight their way through and hack and slash because all of it is done with like no one the, one of the big things is that there are few firearms or that's what they perceive at the beginning anyway so yeah. everything's done with literally hatchets so they have to hack their way through to get to the front where they can then see outside and see what the world's like and yeah, you see but they're not these... even aware that that is no well that it's there no they're just but they're told that and again we get this there's a sequence where you see children being taught in a school of sorts and again, it's like them give, being fed this from the, from an early age. You get like the idea that there are people on this train, all the children who were just born on the train. This is all they've ever known. Yeah, this is their this is the whole world to them. And then they've been how they're indoctrinated into having that fear of the outside, um, and the outside being used as a punishment weapon as well. Like so, there's again quite early on in the film, they use this whole thing where there's a hole in the side of the train that can shove someone's arm through it as a way yeah. of punishing them and like just not even sending you outside because that would kill you. And obviously we'd have to stop the train or throw you off. So what we're going to do instead is just going to put your arm outside of the train for seven minutes, see what happens. Mm-hmm. It's like, fuck. And again, yeah. it, it, Cause they all... calculate it as well. And they're like, right at this altitude. Yeah. It's going to be this. Yeah. And as a result of that, we can shatter the arm <laughs> because it freezes solid in that time. Yeah. But it's also like, again, it's a much it's a lot more um, effective for that to be uh, like a punishment almost. So like by hobbling the person mm. in, in a way or by taking one of his arms, it's because well, because of the inciting influence is that he throws something at somebody and because he causes that, they're like, this must have, like your actions must have consequences, which is something that, again, is like said early on, but is demonstrated throughout this entire film. Yeah. Is like the consequences that you're going to get from acting in certain ways. Yeah. And this guy played by, is it Ewan Bremner? It is Ewan Bremner, yeah. Um, yeah, he gets, he loses an arm. Yeah. And it's quite a shocking scene as well. Like the way that, and you find out like his motivation for doing this and why these things happen and all these things sort of build up around it. And it's so like multifaceted and it's, mm. it's not exactly like heavily veiled. There isn't a great deal of like deep metaphor here. Mm. Like if you are going to watch this film, you are going to understand like the classism and you're going to understand. Yeah. Like, well, is that, the, is that point as well? Because he throws a shoe 
what basically yeah. happens is he throws a shoe, and then they had they have then have Tilda Swinton come in and give this whole big speech about being a shoe and and being so, being a head or whatever. It's it's about you don't wear a shoe on your head. You wouldn't wear a shoe on your head, would you? No, know your place. You guys are the shoes. I am the hat. I am a hat or whatever. And she like has this whole big speech and she does it in this Yorkshire accent as well, which is really yeah. weird and off-putting. And like just everything about her, the way she's designed, she's got these big like glasses. She's got weird snaggle tooth. Weird sort snaggle of, tooth. Like rotten grey tooth. And then like the first thing I thought, and I and this was before I read did any more reading or anything, I was like, she seems like a character out of a Roald Dahl thing or like Harry Potter. She reminded right. me she reminded me of like Umbridge from the Harry Potter. Um, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that just seems a bit odd. But again, as you go into the, you see, like, particularly there's the scene with the, the school when you see what the how the kids are taught and that that whole setting and how that's done. You it sort of clicks a little bit more and it makes more sense. It does yeah, the the and it's like the indoctrination of these children, yeah. like as well. Uh, again really sort of layers in a lot more of like like i said like there's layered meaning in here and it's like the indoctrination of the children but one thing that you learn that is a little bit of a spoiler is that one is that the child the child that was taken was not taken to the school no and you're like okay mm, now where has this child gone and they're like oh he's just he went that way and they just yeah. point towards the front of the train yeah you're like oh shit okay that this is this is something different now. Like this isn't, this child isn't being brought on to learn that this child is either going to go much further mm. forward, like in a good way or a bad way. So what do we know about this? Because whenever Tilda Swinton's character talks about it, she just says that she doesn't know. Yeah. But then there's like, yeah, there's almost like an optimism about it that she doesn't know because she's not like, oh, the kid's dead or the kid's doing this or the kid's doing that or it's doing this. Like, she just doesn't know because yeah. she's not privy to that. Like, she exists. She doesn't exist in the same realm that the people in, like, the front part of the carriage do. No. So... No, and, that's, and then there's also this whole thing of, so they have this, they have this almost religion built around the engine. So the engine is a sa- they call it the sacred engine, and then there's also Wilfred, who is the man who created the train. And yeah. the way they talk about him, like he's like a deity, he's like the savior of humanity. And in a real sense, he is the savior of humanity. He created this train, and he's the one, the only reason that any of them are alive right now. And there's also this sort of this symbiotic relationship, if you like, whereby the people at the front of the train are producing these protein bars. And it's this like black congealed horrible bar of crap that's given to these guys at the back to eat. And that's the only thing that's keeping them alive. That's their, their rations. So as yeah. much as they are, you know, subjugating all the rest of it, if they're being kept alive, they're being like fed by the guys at the front who have got the guns and all the power. Mm. And it's like, well, what, what are they getting out of it? Although all we know is that every now and then they'll come and take our kids and we don't know what happens to some of them. Yeah. But and because they control fine. our food and water, yeah, and because they are further forward, that's yeah. how the society works. Yeah, and it's so obviously all this is is a massive like metaphor for you know the sort of Marxist ideas about you know owning the means of production and the proletariat versus the getting your bourgeoisie, all that sort of stuff. And there's so many different readings you could have into it in terms of you know societal class structures and all that kind of stuff. But it's yeah. really like super focused into this this one world, this post-apocalyptic like scenario. Um, 
yeah, I mean, there's so many things you could you could read into it. I'm sure there's lots been written about the different ways of interpreting it, and yeah, it's it's crazy. It's fucking brilliant. Like, I can't say enough good about this film. Yeah. Um, and it's because there's so much that's unfurled as it goes. Yeah. It's like you're saying, like the one of the more important things about this film is is the discovery of what you pick up along the way aside from as well as these characters because they are learning so much they are like this is the as far forward as they've ever been yeah yeah so they find so like for instance like yeah the um you find out the the protein bars you find out exactly where they come from yeah and that is a big turning point or is it is a revelation and again you're you're learning as the characters learn um and yeah it's yeah and then again like the but then the, the, it's the the way that the film is shot as well mm. is so fucking smart. Like, yeah, it's because it, it was the film yeah. itself was they were it was shot on these cars, these train cars. So you don't see these massively broad, wide angle shots. Everything is exceptionally claustrophobic, and like the way that the sound is used and driven in and sort of forced into like this really claustrophobic environment just mm. adds so much more to the tension. And the helplessness that these characters are feeling as they go through. Yeah, um, and it's, it's used so effectively in like some of the action scenes because there are some. There's some great, I say great. It's brutal action, yeah. um, and there are like so. There's one where you know you get a proper clash between the um, the soldiers of the of the um, of the upper class and the soldiers of the lower class, but then you get more like intense one-on-one fights. And there's one where it's like a is they're in like a sauna type. Um, carriage i'd say and yeah. it's like and there everything's got this like gold light and it's all a bit hazy but it's so like beautifully well done mm-hmm. um and you get this like so there are um again antagonist um characters so i can't remember the name of the guy but there's this one who's like he's like a silent assassin yeah who's the guy who's coming after him and he's like the main like action um bad guy if you like and he's great throughout the whole thing um yeah, and you get it's just, it's a really good. So although Chris Evans is the lead, is a real ensemble cast, and it is like everyone gets a moment to shine. Um, like we said before, um, let me get his name up. Kang Ho Song is great in this. Mm-hmm. He plays this guy because they also introduce this idea of there being a, a, a drug that they're addicted to, which is like part of the industrial Cronus. waste. Chrono, yeah, which is the industrial waste that comes from the engine. Um, and yeah. the idea is that yeah, Ko Hong Song plays a, a character who's like a security expert and he knows all the ins and outs of how to get through all the gates and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, like he designed the doors. Yeah. But he's also addicted to this chrono stuff, so he has to sniff it and he and they have to like start this relationship with him where they're like, right, for every door you get us through, you get another rock of this. Yeah. And then, yeah, and that becomes a whole thing. But he plays that really well. Um and they, they use the fact that he doesn't speak English really effectively because he has mm. this whole relationship with his daughter who he tags along with him as well and they've got to have these more they have a whole different agenda going on which none of the characters are aware of but we are because we can read subtitles yeah and that's a whole thing and they play that really really like cleverly um and you really it all comes together right at the end where there's a scene between him and chris evans which we'll talk about after we talk about spoilers and think where you, you realize everything that's been going on throughout the whole thing and what his sort of theory on how to achieve what they want to achieve is yeah um but yeah man <laughs> so 
Um, I'm just trying to think about like the production design is incredible. Obviously, we've spoken about that. Direction is brilliant. Like the score, I always sort of, I always always bring up the score because it's something that always it particularly stands out to me in films. Mm. I don't know, it's something that is one of the main things that always hooks me in a film is yeah. how it's like sound design really, and there there aren't that many memorable parts but like there's a particular sequence where you say like the two forces come together yes yeah like the way that the the score and the soundtrack and the audio is used there is just it just brings it fills you with so much dread yeah absolutely because it happens and like the way that the characters the like the uh the guards from the the front of the train are dressed and yeah. this sound effect and the way it's just so intimidating and so frightening and you just go, Oh, that no one's getting out of this life. No, it's the yeah, absolute. And it's like, again, that, that idea of, of having these like huge scale or they feel like they're massive in scale, but just for the pure amount of numbers of people who are involved in these action scenes, but yeah. it's all taking place on a train carriage that everything's so claustrophobic. Yeah. It's like try trying to have like a full like two armies clashing, but you you're stuck in this metal container. It's like there's yeah. no way out. If the guy gets you, you 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 get got. And people like there are a lot of deaths in this movie as well, and there are a lot of you know yeah. not everyone makes it to the end. And so it's that kind of classic, almost like a zombie movie, whereas you know everyone just one by one gets picked off until you get the lone survivor at the end. Um, and each one, like, is done the, really well. one thing I like about this film is. is it doesn't sort of f- fall into any sort of codifying of the way that the film you would work. Mm. So obviously we've spoken about like, obviously we've studied film and stuff before, but like the way that codes and conventions work in films and like codes is like the way that a film will fall naturally or will sit in its own way, possibly unaware mm. of the way that it does things. It's just like the, the structure of a sci-fi film or, the way that sci-fi works is that certain things happen in that way because it's a sci-fi film. And then conversely, sci-fi films have these things in there because it's the way that they're codified. So that happens in this a lot as well. And it's like, it's heavily lent into, but at the same time, it's, it's not overt. Yeah. Like the way that you sort of see things as they come along, you're like, this isn't how this would work in a normal sort of science fiction film. Yeah like everything would work slightly differently here. And it's another thing you're like, this film's just keeping me guessing again and again and again and again. And there are so many things like there are times, because obviously I, like I say, I was watching it for the first time. So I didn't, there are a few twists I'd say at the end where you realize, you know, the real, the overarching plot, which we'll get into, I think after we do a spoiler attack, but it, everything makes sense in retrospect, if you like. So there are times during the movie where I'm like, hang on, Surely A, B, and C. Surely they would do this. Surely they would do that. And then once you get to the end, you realize, ah, right, okay. And it was yeah. all there. It was all there. But like everything, everything you needed to know was shown to you in that. But you just didn't realize it at the time, which is why yeah. it's definitely worth rewatching. I think it's definitely worth multiple viewings um, because it does definitely change once you realize the extent of everything and, and what the sort of the overall motivations were. Um, yeah. But it's just brilliantly layered in all all the all the um yeah all the all the plots and and then the counter plots and the, and the way the different characters sort of relate to one another and it's yeah it's it's so well done yeah and again 
like not to sort of always bang on about like budgets and stuff like that but this is a film that cost less than 100 million dollars i think it was less than 50 million dollars yeah but it made like it made double its money back it wasn't really massively promoted because it is like this r-rated hard sci-fi film where people are gonna sort of go in and expect one thing and sort of receive something else yeah definitely yeah and it's it's a bit more cerebral than you may expect it to be initially but that pays off as you go through the film yeah i think part of it as well is like again we need to talk about it later but it's like the way the, the film ends it's not it's not the convent it's not a hollywood movie do you no. know what I mean? it's not it's not a um because there's plenty of like dystopian you know near future but even something like you know mad max for instance might it, it like is almost more hopeful than this it's like you know what yeah. I mean? it's like even it's more conventionally or you know book of eli i'm just trying to think of other sort of post-apocalyptic movies they always find a way to make it more hopeful whereas this is like no <laughs> no no it's not that kind of thing and so it's, yeah, i can see from a marketing point of view why this would be a tough sell but i, I again yeah. they they don't compromise their vision on it um, no, and, I love and that's that. another thing that I love so much is that this film is demonstrating something here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's not as simple a message as you would expect going in, which yeah. is maybe why it wasn't promoted so highly. Because I know that it was, it was actually supposed to be like this art house indie sort of side of things, and then there was a lot of controversy because the Weinstein Company were yeah. talking about. Um, like re-editing it to make it more Hollywoodized and make it a little bit more yeah, straightforward. So there's a, a story that I read here, which I um, which I thought was great actually. So um, Bong Joon Ho, whilst he was making this, he was clashing with. So Harvey Weinstein was one of the producers on this. Right. Um, we won't get into the whole Harvey Weinstein stuff. Obviously, he's a piece of shit. Um, but yeah. they were they clashed on this on this movie in a couple of instances. Um, among many of the requests that Weinstein had, he insisted on having the fish scene removed in favour of more action. This is a scene where they, all the um, guards, the bad guys, are like blooding their hatchets with this fish, and it's quite a weird sort of out there scene. Um, um, but Bong, who considered it his favourite shot in the film, was adamant to keep it in. He told the producer that he wanted to keep the shot for a personal reason, as a tribute to his late father, who was a fisherman. <laughs> upon, hear, upon hearing this, Weinstein said that family is very important to him, so he granted Bond, he allowed Bond to keep the shot in. In an interview, the director said, it was a fucking lie. I lied. My father was not a fisherman. Like, <laughs> he completely made that up to just do one over on Weinstein because he was like, no, I, well, I really like that shot. I want to keep it. I yeah. love that story. That's so... <laughs> I think that's great. That's and that, so... that's, again, like, seeing all this stuff from, like, this year, like, all the awards and stuff, like... He's he's for a guy that puts out like films that have like really quite dark subject matters in them and quite tragic things that happen. Mm. He's so funny. He is really funny. He, yeah, he's great. And we um so again for those who don't know, this is the same the director we're talking about, Bong Joon Ho, is the guy who directed Parasite, and so he's suddenly become a lot more sort of prevalent. Everyone sort of is more aware of him now as off the back of that yeah. movie. Um, but he, so that we watched that, we watched Parasite and saw a um, Q&A with him afterwards. Um, and yeah, you're right. He's just, he's got this like wicked sense of humor. And so does the, uh, the actor as well. Um, do I get his name up? God damn it. 
Kang Ho Song. Kang Ho Song. Um, the pair of them are both got like they both they make these incredibly dark movies and these incredibly and like his performances are always quite sort of they're not he never plays like a comedic character really. And, no. and the films that he makes are always really dark, but they both have this wicked sense of humour when they talk in interviews and stuff. Um, and it's not to say there aren't moments, even in Snowpiercer, where it's, it's funny-ish, I guess. Like, so the Tilda Swinton stuff, um, there are moments where you, it is like a weird satire, comedy-type thing, I guess. Um, and like, yeah, the, and again, the, the, the scene that always get, that gets me is the um, scene with the kids and the teacher. <laughs> yeah. the teacher played by Alison Pill and she's just so over the top and so ridiculous and it is just this most jarring like left turn into this and the same sort of thing happens in Parasite there are moments in Parasite where, which are just really funny and then it will get really really dark immediately afterwards um, yeah. and he's kind of a master at shifting tones um, he, does, he demonstrates that really well and it sort really of lures well, you in as well That's yeah, it's absolutely. like such a clever way of sort of luring you in and sort of lightening the mood a minute and yeah. then sort of quickly pulling the rug out from underneath you yeah and, and you go oh, oh fucking hell okay <laughs> like, yeah, it's just that, that's that, what this is that juxtaposition like it's, it's funny it's like seeing kids do the whole chanting hello missus whatever and they're all saying it at the same time that's kind of like inherently a bit funny like the the set design of the of that school um train carriages or everything's bright colorful and it's all and all the rest of it but then what they're saying in that chant is really dark because remember if we go outside we all freeze and die and they all say it like at the same time it's like that's really dark but you're doing it in this yeah. like sing-song voice it's so it's but it's so like the way that it's demonstrated in such a nonchalant way that it's gone to show like the indoctrination of her as well yeah because she is in is equally in that boat where she's like, oh no, yeah, if we go outside, we're going to die. Yeah, and, like, and, so, and same with just, she just has to yeah. explain it to kids in that way. Yeah, and so, yeah, you go, character is fully like she's fully drunk the Kool Aid. She's well into it. Yeah. Like it will for like he's sacred, he is divine, and like everyone has their this idea of everyone has their preordained place and their like role to play. Yeah. is something that is part of that indoctrination and something that all the disciples of Wilfred and then, you know, the guys at the front really believe. And it's like, no, this is your place. This is what you have to do. This is what your job is, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and something to be said for that, like, there's a reason, but like, from a complete, like, ecological point of view, like, everything has to be maintained perfectly. And like, all these little things, like, again, there's the scene where they go into the aquarium piece and they talk about, oh, would you guys like some sushi? We can only eat sushi twice a year because it's we have to carefully cultivate the exact number of fish yeah. that can be in here. Otherwise, there'll be too many or too few, and it would the whole system would be out of balance. And that is really pathetic. You don't realise it at the time, but it's really <laughs> important. Yeah. Like again, these are so well done. It's so well layered. I love this film. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Like <laughs> every time I watch this film, I find and learn something new, and I'm like. Yeah it just gets better and better for me. And yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, like before we get into yeah. spoiler turf, it's worth noting that this is obvious, quite obviously a film that we're going to heavily, heavily recommend you see. Yeah. So be aware that we are going to talk about spoilers that do completely give away the ending. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Part of it is, it's one of those, um, 
when you realise the concept of it, that is the film. Like the, the, the ending changes everything. And that final scene sort of is the whole film in a nutshell. So it's hard to talk about without spoiling. Um, yeah. I think we've done as much as we can. Um, and if you've got, all I'd say is like, if you like that sort of dark, uh, be, like be prepared. It's not a fun film necessarily to watch. It is bleak. No. Um, but if you like that kind of thing, um, then definitely I would say give this a go because it is so well done. Um, but yeah, it has like a lesson to lessons to sort of teach as well as sort of sitting down and watching. So yeah. you're not just going to sit down and go, this is a nice time. Let's yeah. watch this feel good film about a train you're going to watch this film and you're going to have it's like something about this film is going to stick with you. Yeah. And I definitely say as well, because yeah, the reason we're it's getting another look at now is because this, there's this new Netflix show coming up, obviously, which we talked about at the beginning. But yeah. what I would say is if you see that pop up on Netflix and you're you know interested in watching it, I would definitely recommend watch the film first, just to yeah. give you an understanding of what you're getting yourself into, if you see what I mean. And it will give you a really yeah. good grounding as to what you're going, what how it's going to go forward. And then we'll see how the TV show pans out. I might change my mind on that when we, you know, a few months down the line, once the whole season is done. Yeah. But at the moment, I'm say, interested to see this because like, I, what I want to do is have a conversation with someone who's like watched the film second or hasn't yes. seen the film and yeah. has only watched the, um, the tv show yeah which is why i was suggesting that you know in however many weeks time we actually come back to this mm. and say right what did what did we learn what was different what was better what was worse yeah absolutely I'm, I'm, I'm definitely up for that um do a season one recap and then compare it to this because i feel there's going to be a lot of things that are different because like i say he already has made lots of different changes from the original source material so yeah. whether the TV show decides to be more true to the source material is going to be, will dictate a lot of how it goes. Um, and again, yeah. the other element of it is that TV series tend to be ongoing. So even even after eight hours of a, or however many episodes there are in the first season, we might not get to the same point in the story that the film gets to. We might no. only get to, you know, but we don't know. It's, we, we don't know it's like a prime example of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but having said that, I think this is probably a good time to then drop the spoiler tag, do you reckon? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It, may, okay. it would make sense that we <laughs> uh, yeah. start throwing it in at this point. Okay, so spoilers from here on out. Um, everyone so dies. Everyone dies at the end. <laughs> like, <yeah>. <laughs> everyone <laughs> dies at the end. But the, I think the main thing is obviously, like, and the thing I was trying to hint at before is that when you get to the end of this, you meet Wilfred, who is like it's kind of like meeting God or meeting yeah, like it reminds me a little bit of the um, the architect from the Matrix. Yeah, um, and there are a lot uh, of parallels to be drawn with this and the Matrix actually, which in talking about them are spoilers. Yeah, but also like one of the things that gets me with this is the um, uh, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, also, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, right. Get into this because you sent me this, and I was like, I'm not going to watch this because I, <laughs> right. I, I don't want to. But okay. also, I'm not going to watch this because I want you to explain this concept to me whilst we're recording. Okay. Okay. So 
there is a, a theory gone around and it's gained quite a lot of traction. So I can't, I'm not sure, um, let me at least reference the guy whose video I watched to begin with, because it's hard to trace where this originally came from, this idea. But the main idea essentially is that Snowpiercer is a sequel to um, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Right. So specifically the, that version of it. So Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Willy right, Wonka. Not Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but it's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, that movie, yeah. So that, the Gene... Um, Wilder, Gene Wilder. Uh, I was going to say Gene Kelly then. I was like, no. Um, Gene Wilder, original movie. Um, let me find the name of the guy whose video I watched. Uh, Rhino Stew. So there's a... a um, YouTube channel called Rhino Stew, and this was their film theory. People have since then built on that theory. There have been articles about it. There's been videos about it, all kinds of stuff. And the, yeah, the basic theory is that this is a sequel to Willy Wonka. And Wilfred, the character who we meet right at the very end, who's controlling the train, built the train, all the rest of it, is a grown-up version of Charlie Bucket. Okay. And this, there are loads of different elements to it, but the main point is that he inherited... Willy Wonka, at the end of Charlie and Chocolate Factory, he inherits Willy Wonka's factory and everything that he has. Throughout Willy Wonka, what we see is that Willy Wonka has lots of means of, um, innovative means of food production. He can create an entire meal in a pill, essentially, can't he, that you can then chew the chewing, oh, it's chewing gum, isn't it? It's chewing yeah. gum that you chew that you can then eat all the different um, parts of a meal in one. He also has lots of weird means of transportation, like the um, boat and the weird car that he has, and of course the glass elevator from the end of the movie. So it makes sense that the train would be a means of transportation and also it has means of food production, weird food production, very much like the things that we see in what, some of the scenes in Willy Wonka. Right. So it makes sense that Charlie would have the technology that he inherited from Wonka to be able to create a self-sustaining transport system that was also able to create food so that that's one element of it there are other like things that tie into it so they go right well there are you know parts how is he able to build parts of this whereby in order to keep it running he has to put a small person into it to be able to keep manually doing a thing it's like well a lot of wonka's inventions were powered by people doing things but they were small people they were in palumpas okay so the kids that are taken from the beginning and then have to get put in. So there's a seat for a small child inside this giant engine piece, which we see right at the very end. And it's like, well, why would you design it like that? Probably because it was designed based on a Willy Wonka invention, which included there being an Oompa there to operate it. Right. There's loads of shit. There's loads and loads of shit. There's a bit like, so the silent assassin guy who loves guns, the theory suggests that that's actually Mike TV. Right. Um, Tilda Swinton's character, Mason, is actually a grown-up Veruca Soul. Okay. There's, there, honestly, I would check it out online. It's an amazing theory. And, like, the more you read into it, the more it makes sense. Like, even to the point where, like, the way the characters go through the um, train is like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory in that they go into different rooms and each one gets picked off one by one in the same way that Augustus Gloop <laughs> gets got and then Veruca Salt gets got, and then all the okay. different kids, like, and then Charlie's the one who gets to the very end. And what happens between Charlie and um, Curtis at the very end? He tries to get him to take his place because I'm not going to live forever. Exactly like, okay. Willy, like Willy Wonka did to him. So it's the next <laughs> generation along. It's, it's then Charlie going, right, I can't do this anymore. I need someone to take my place. Curtis, it's going to be you. 
he calls him my boy, which is exactly what uh, what Willy Wonka called him. Like there are loads of things. <laughs> I mean, I'm not convinced, but I'm I'm. Uh, it's you know, it seems like a fun theory. It, yeah, it is. It is a fun theory. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't for one second believe that it's true. <laughs> but I love it at the same time. I think it's a great, like, fun theory to sort of. And you, 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 like, it's one of those things you watch it. I was just watching. I was going, oh shit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course it is. Like Veruca Salt. Like she's, um, is it Veruca Salt? Who's? I get confused with the two girls because there's the one who chews chewing gum all the time. And there's the bitch Violet. Who, Violet Beauregard, that's it. Violet Beauregard, who ends up being Tilda Swinton. Like, she's like in love with Charlie because Charlie was the one who saved her from being like burnt alive in Willy, Willy Wonka's factory and all this sort of okay. stuff. The fact that everything's branded with a d- giant W. The fact that like Curtis is the new Charlie Bucket because he spends his entire movie trying to get through a gate with the word du- with the letter W on it. Exactly like Charlie was trying to get through right. a gate with the, word, with the letter W on it. In the original, do you know what I mean? Like, there's loads <laughs> of different things. But someone's even said the score, like there are there are three notes played in the score, like repeatedly, like ding ding ding, and it sounds like World of Ma- uh, Pure Imagination from Willy Wonka. Mm. I mean, okay, that that one's like, okay, I'll listen, I'll listen out for that one because I, I normally pick up on audio cues, and I'm like, yeah, I'm normally pretty good with that, but. That was one that I just didn't get. No. But this sounds fucking mad, to be honest. It's brilliant. I love it. I think it's a great theory. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one element. Of, obviously, setting that aside for a minute, what we do have at the very end is that we, we do meet Wilfred, we do, and the big sort of twist of the whole thing is that the entire, everything that we've seen has been a manufactured, preordained, figured-out plan that him and... Um, John Hurt's character, who, yeah, I can't, yeah, John Hurt's character have already have figured out together, and it's basically the whole idea is that it's just a means of population control. They're just yeah. doing it as a way of, and it, again, that's why it reminds me a little bit of the Matrix. Is like when you get to when they got to the um, architect in the second Matrix film, and he's like, "Oh no, this happens every, you know, you're like the third one, Neo." Yeah, we tell you that there's a way out so because that way is, is a method of control we let you know there's a little bit of hope and then what we do then is we turn around and go right how many do we need to get we need to kill 64% okay kill 64% and then we, we quell this we stop we put you all back in your place we maintain yeah. the right number of people because that's again something they hinted at with the whole fish thing is that this whole system is only sustainable if there are a certain number of people on there if you like yeah. you guys keep making kids and the population is going to you know, exponentially grow to a point where we can't sustain it anymore. So every few years, we let you have a little uprising and then we kill a load of you. It's like, fuck. <laughs> and then that's when you realize that all the little things that have happened. So like and the initial rush of them going up, going for it at the beginning is based on the idea that they think they don't have any bullets left. Yeah. And they and they didn't have any bullets left at that particular point. Then when they realised that they need to put you know, start pushing back against them, suddenly there's loads of bullets everywhere. Yeah, and but it's also like, it's like it's um, oh, I can't remember the like. There's a reference in there basically that uh, about like a shooting squad, like a firing squad. Yeah, it's similar to a theory about 
uh, there's like a Star Wars theory to this as well, that the firing squad, like out of, say there are 10 people in a firing squad, uh, seven of them uh, have blanks. Yeah. And they know that seven of them have blanks. Yeah. So yeah. they don't know who it is that's going to be actually doing the killing. And, it, and it's like provides like a stronger ethical sort of systemology to it is that people go, Oh, it's well, it's probably not me because statistically I'm not that likely to be having that one. Yeah. So, but also in this as well, it's also like a prevention thing It's preventive in so much as they can go, well, there are loads of these guys in this carriage and there are only a few like security guards. So why would we put in a few security guards with weapons who could yeah. easily be outnumbered as as quickly as it's shown that they can be outnumbered? Yeah, exactly. And it, it sort of, it all makes sense in retrospect. Those, those are the kind of things where I was like, eh, really? And like, then again, so when the guns all like turned up again, I was like, well, hang on, how come they didn't have guns at the, at the very beginning that were armed? And, and then you realize, right, this is all part of the plan sort of thing. And again, like, I was because early on in the movie they show the guys like planning their escape, so they have this really sort of cool idea where they string a load of barrels together, yeah, and like create this bathroom round that will hold open all the doors so they can get through it. But they're very clearly doing it and putting it all together. And I'm like, surely these people at the front of the train would have like cameras everywhere; they'd be able to see what the other lot are doing. And then, sure enough, later in the movie they show footage from a security camera to Curtis when he sees it's John Hurt's character getting executed. Yeah. So it's like, oh no, yeah, they, they were 100% were watching them and was, were fully aware of what was going on, but they just let them do it. Because, yeah, they like, because again... It fits, their, it fits their purpose. Yeah, because again, you know, John Hurt's character and Wilfred were working on it together and they were stoking Curtis. And again, they were grooming Curtis to be the new person who to take over. That was always yeah. the plan. Um, and like the way that he refers to it as the Curtis Revolution. Yeah, the Great Curtis Revolution. And like since we we also get a hint at the previous one, so there was the seven who were the guys who tried to escape the train, derail it. Who actually made it off the train. Yeah, and then so they use that to again scare the and they show that being used as a piece of propaganda to scare the kids. Because yeah. they go past it in the train and they uh, like as they're in the um school carriage and they go, Look, this is what happens if you try and buck the system sort of thing so yeah. you can already see it being used the idea of like oh no what, what we do is we let you have these revolutions and then use them as cautionary tales to stop everyone and everyone having revolutions until it's convenient for us and then we'll let you have one so we can kill a bunch of yeah you. it's like it's so fucking dark <laughs> and it's well yeah it's fucking amazing and like it's yeah. the, the way that they talk about like things being preordained mm. and then like the interesting part of this is that there is a clairvoyant character yeah. in there. And they which never really, isn't really sort of lent into too no, much. No, they, they just, they, she keeps being able to say what's on the other side of the door. Yeah. And stuff like that. And then again, right at the very end of the movie, there's something I noticed is that she just instinctively goes under the floorboards of um, Wilfred's place and finds the kid in there. Yeah. Because that's another thing that we haven't touched on is that there's this idea that well, they were they were taking the kids. We didn't know what the reason for it was. The reason was they were put into the machines to keep them running, essentially, like to do manual tasks that were no, like the the parts for the machine for the engine no longer exist. So you can't get replacement yeah. parts. So instead, you get a kid to go in there and do it. 
because obviously all the employees have died out at this point, so they need to get someone to do it. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the... Um, I'm telling you, man. It's, um, the Umpalumpas have died out. Um, oh, you've thrown me off my thought pattern now. <laughs> oh, what was it? Um, yeah, but it's one of the things that I really... is how they talk about things um, going extinct. Yeah, exactly. So, so bullets like are heart, extinct, they talk bullets about, are extinct. Right? Cigarettes went extinct ten years ago. Yeah, and uh, like, oh, those parts went extinct. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's interesting, like vernacular to talk about, like the whole of that thing being wiped out. It's not just we ran out. That's it. It's all gone. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not a case of oh, we yeah, there's a supply, but we've run out of this. Like yeah. I say, is because they are fully under the impression that they are the only life on the planet, and they don't know that. No. Like, there's and no we way. We don't that, know that. No, we don't know. No, there, there's no way of knowing that this is the this is all that is left of humanity. But the way they talk about it, and like that's the thing that's great about this final scene with um, Wilfred and Wilfred played by Ed Harris, by the way. Um, yeah, he just turns out right at the end, and he absolutely kills it. He's having, he's doing a great job. But what's great about him is that he's got this sort of he believes his own bullshit. He believes his own legend sort of thing. So he talks yeah. about you have a sacred duty to look after all of humanity. This is the world and what we have on the train is humanity because he believes purely that there is literally, there is nothing else outside of this train. Everything's no. dead. Everything's dead. Um, and that's proven not to be the case at the end. And that's where we get into um, the, the other sort of theory that's been going along the whole way through um, with, Kong, Kong Ho Song's character, where he's yeah. been realizing slowly, like he says, we've been going round and round this, like, because the idea is that he does, he circumnavigates the world every year. So because every year we go past, there's a plane that's gone down. I realized that more every time we go past, I can see more and more of the plane. Yeah, which means the ice must be melting. It must be getting warmer out there. And so he he's able to start thinking maybe we can actually survive outside the train. And that's something that no one else has ever thought about, though, because they've just been so indoctrinated. Even Chris Evans's character, he goes, "What? What? We go outside and then freeze and die? It's a great idea." They're like, yeah. no, think about it. Like, um, so yeah, and that like ends up being the whole thing at the very end is that we get we do glimpse a uh, polar bear, and it started to realize that there is life out there. Yeah, and it's possible. I mean, to- that's that's less hopeful because. A polar bear is designed to live in a sub-zero environment. Yeah, but it's also more really realistic, isn't it? It's a better way of showing yeah. it. Um, it's like, also, but it also does like I'm being facetious, really. But like, it does indicate that there is like enough life to support a polar bear out there, and that's something that's like an alpha predator that's yeah. going to be hunting. It's yeah. not just going to be. It, it doesn't just fucking eat snow. Of course, it eats meat and a lot of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it, it it implies a lot just by having that one thing at the end, and that is the one hopeful note that you get at the end of this. Yeah, because everyone does die. <laughs> like, oh yeah, everyone dies. I mean, the other sort of element of it we do need to talk about, I think, is when you get Curtis's whole backstory and that whole monologue that Evans does. Yeah, because it's amazing it's it's really well acted and it's quite subtle but also it just fills in so much of what you've seen previously you understand jamie bell's character better you understand um john hurt's character better and it all just comes out in this scene where he's having this what's probably the world's last cigarette 
<laughs> he's just sitting there just like burying his soul a little bit. Um, and it has that line that has been taken out as far as that, you know what I hate about myself? I know what people taste like and I know that babies taste best. Yeah. Which is the darkest shit. <laughs> it's just like, this is Captain America. Fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Captain I, America just said that. Yeah, and I love that. he And the, the way he delivers that and just the amount of like self-loathing fucking and like this uh, they have this whole thing where he tells the story about how when it started there was no food for everybody so we started eating the weak and then it was john hurt's character who sacrificed his arm he literally yeah. took his own arm off so that someone would have something to eat and then it then again recontextualizes the scene earlier where you saw that he had a scar on his arm and they were talking about it. you didn't quite understand what they were getting at but now you realize that he tried to take his own arm off to give someone something to eat and he couldn't do it. Yeah. And so again, they have this great moment, right? At the very end of the movie, he sacrifices his arm to save the kid. Yeah. So he finally gets a chance to do it in a different way. It's like like his own redemptive section within it. But at the same time, what he's doing in not just sacrificing his arm, but everything else when he sets himself as up as a human shield. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and um, oh, fuck, so good. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a redemptive thing. It's um, like I say, it recontextualizes everything that you've seen before. Yeah, um, and gives you a real understanding of who all the characters are. So again, you realise more about his relationship with Jamie Bell's character because again, they had these um, these pieces with him and John Hurt saying, "Oh, the, the kid loves you. He thinks you're great." He goes, "Yeah, you shouldn't look up to me the way he does." No, and you don't understand why that is until later on. I love the way they do this without like over um, expositioning it until the very end. So there's yeah, no reason, and that, there'll, there'll be no reason. It could him be to... really dangerous to do that, and that's yeah. one of the things that I'm worried about with the TV series. Yeah, is that well, it's going to layer in. It's it's not going to be as subtle. Mm. It's going to be this sort of like overzealous. Like we really like this, so we're going to make this. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, like, I feel like the writing's going to be on the wall, and they are going to not dumb it down, but be less tactful about it and be a bit more abrasive. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's what's interesting about the series. Like, I don't know if they're actually going to be following the plot, or well, not so much the plot. I think that the plot will be very fairly similar, but the characters I don't think will be that similar. So, like, you look at like the cast list and stuff. And, like the guy, he's not playing Curtis. No. Is playing someone completely different, the lead, the main lead in there. And same with Jennifer Connelly. Like, from initially looking at it, you'd think, oh, she's playing Tilda Swinton's character. She's called mm. something completely different. She's called Melanie Cavill, and that's not Mrs. Mason. Like, there are no, so I feel like they're probably going to use the framework, but then have different characters and characterizations and backstories for each one of them. So I'll, I'll be surprised if they did have an equivalent of Curtis and an equivalent of Jamie Bell's character and have them have that same backstory with one another i hope um, not i hope it is like a little bit more original because that's one of the things that we always talk about when we're talking about sort of sequels prequels remakes and reboots mm. is that we don't that by just doing the same thing over again is fairly ineffectual yeah and like there's there isn't a great deal of point to it it's just remaking something if you're going to do something and have it have a different note to it or have a different depth to it or have a different slightly like tailor the message or tweak the message Mm. to make it a little bit more interesting then crack on yeah but don't just 
shot for shot. No, there's no point now. I, d- I don't think that's what it, from having watched the trailer and stuff, I don't think that's what it will be. I think it'll be something yeah. different. I'm really um, interested to see it actually, because yeah. obviously how much I enjoy this. Um, can we sort of slightly backtrack to about the reference that you made about um, Ed's character being so much like um, the architect, the architect in the matrix? Yeah. Because this is um, like the determinism that's in, uh, that's in this is actually one of the things so that the um uh, it's the wachowskis isn't it who make matrix, who made yeah. the made the matrix yeah so they get like um a lot of stick because what they've done in making the matrix they've made some great they've made a great film but it's ripped off like it's yeah. absolutely ripped off so much like yeah. it's transmetropolitan it's like um Snow Crash, Snowpiercer, it's a lot of all these sort of like high concept, like science fiction slapped together. Mm. And like you say, like there, there are things in there that you're like, well, this is, this is literally stolen from this and this is taken from this and this is taken from this. And it's not me, this isn't like a spurious allegation that I'm making. These are things that people have raised before, but it's an interesting point to note that this is where some of this stuff comes from. Yeah, is that there? This is because Snowpiercer was written in I think it was 1981 or 1982 or 1980 or something like that, like early 80s is what I'm getting at. Um, but yeah, it's again like finding the better things out there that have led to something like. But yeah, it was was basically something that I wanted to raise. Yeah, no, it's fair point. I mean, yeah, like I say, it's definitely. I, I think people will watch this and go, oh, it's just like The Matrix. But again, you have to realise that, no, the comic of this was based on came before The Matrix and it was the kind of thing that would have inspired them. And yeah, I, I yeah, completely get what you mean. Inspired in very big, inverted commas. Yeah, yeah. Um, with, a, with a big old winky after, a wink, not winky, <laughs> wink afterwards. Um, yeah. yeah, just a big old dick. Um, but yeah, either way, you should really fucking watch Snowpiercer. If you're listening to this, you should have watched it already. Yeah. If you don't, I'm sorry that we've spoiled this, but we gave you prior warning. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, just go, go watch it. Make sure you've watched it. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Let yeah, us but, know as well. Like, but watch Willy Wonka and Chocolate Factory first, then watch it <laughs> no. because it's a sequel and it works. It's not. I'm definitely it's- not. I'm never watching that video. Please, what you know, please just watch the video. No, it, honestly, it just, it, it just sounds like a flat earther. No, it's evident. not. It makes perfect sense. And people are built on it. It makes perfect sense. I'm telling you. Yeah. Ed Harris. This is how the flat earth movement came about, Dom. No. Oh, oh, you can even like in one shot, you can even see the um the scarf that Charlie's um, grandparents gave him. He's in Wilfred's um study. Right. It's all there, mate. <laughs> I'm not doing this to myself. I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. We're friends. We're co-hosts. Yeah. We're sometimes the same person. But no. John Hurt is playing Slugworth. Oh, Christ. It's the same guy. That's why he calls him old friend. <laughs> it's all there. No. <laughs> no. No. Stop it. That's brought us to the end of this episode. 
<laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Um, like I say, <laughs> go watch Snowpiercer. We will return and we'll be talking about it again once the series, the series one of the of the TV show is wrapped up. Yeah. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see to compare and contrast and see what we think about it. Um, yeah, don't know what the next episode is going to be. Um, we're going to keep channeling them out. We've got a couple in the bag. Um, we could be doing some more stuff. Um, yeah, well, we'll talk about it off air. But yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Uh, let us know what you think of Snowpiercer. Let us know what you think of the show. Um, and we will see you on where the next one is. Yeah. See you in the next one. See ya. Bye. Bye. Um, <sighs> fucking hell. Yeah, I don't know. The Justice League. I, yeah, we'll see what happens. <laughs> like, it's going to be bollocks. It's going to be I, crap. You know what I'm like? I fucking I just need DC to be good. I just want it to be good. Why? Because it just there's just so much. I like the DC characters in the DC universe, and it should be as good as as the Marvel universe. But they just can't get the fucking shit together, and it frustrates me. So every time they're doing something, like yeah, I don't know.